We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, honest conversations about faith, doubt, disbelief, hope, and everything in between. I am your host, Sean Drager. I want to thank all the new listeners who have joined in from these series that I've started up. The music series was very successful, and I know a lot of you have jumped in and started listening because of that series. I've since moved into a series on feminism. Ask me about my feminist agenda. Go ahead, ask me. Um, I do have one with this with this series. I really don't know how long it's going to go. I, I have a lot of just fantastic interviews lined up. I'm going to do a lot of episodes on, on feminism. I think in this day and age, it's something that needs to be discussed. I'm seeing some things on my other podcast, the horror podcast of all things, and we've embraced kind of, you know, uh, champion, championing uh, feminism there. So it's, it's very interesting time. So uh, if you haven't checked out the last episode with Lauren R.E. Larkin and Sarah Terrace from the podcast Azer Uncaged, I would highly recommend you check that one out. Um, it's just a fantastic conversation there. So I'm very excited about the series and where it's going to go. Um, if you want to support the show, I would definitely recommend you check out our Patreon. You, beca- you can become a patron saint for only a dollar a month and what you'll get is you'll get a weekly diary from me um, a little more personal about my personal faith journey and I'm hoping it's something that sparks conversation for all of us in the future you can also follow along to keep the conversations going from these uh, episodes over on Twitter the handle is the AXPX The Reverend Will Gaffney is a biblical scholar, seminary professor, Episcopal priest, and someone whose voice I consider to be extremely valuable in my personal faith journey. In 2013, Joey Avalos and I first had the pleasure to speak with her on Season 1, Episode 20 of this podcast. Since meeting her, I've always valued her perspective on many subjects, but I believe her voice is even more important and relevant with our recent political climate the empowerment of white nationalism by this administration, and the fight by the brave patriots in the Black Lives Matter movement. As our series Ask Me About My Feminist Agenda continues, Reverend Gaffney helps tackle the conversation of race and feminism in today's politically charged culture. today we are talking to the Reverend Will Gaffney. She's an associate professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you so much for joining me today on the AXPX podcast. My pleasure. 
Welcome back. You, uh, when we first started the show, I, I had you on talking about uh, whitewashing of the Bible because there was that uh, TV series. I can't remember if it was CBS or or what. No, it was the History Channel. Of the all- History Channel. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and uh, it's it's on Netflix now, so it's bubbling back up for some people. Um, and then they did rerun it on maybe even on broadcast. Uh, during Holy Week, uh, some Christmas. So we're not rid of it. <laughs> not rid of it yet. Um, every now and then I see some sort of a reenactment about the Bible, and especially Old Testament and, well, and, and New Testament, and they start getting, they get it right on certain cases, but it's few and far between. But it's always refreshing when you, when you see someone cast uh, an, an eth- ethnically appropriate actor uh, for the role, especially, you know, Talking about uh, the New Testament, which you know takes place not in the not in uh, Southern California or <laughs> or anywhere else. So um, I have the link to that show in the show notes. If you guys want to uh, circle back and, and re-listen to that, I really loved your insights to uh, race and gender in regards to the Bible. And I looked and I saw that you have a book coming out called Womanist Midrash: A Reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. And I wanted to ask you, first off, what, what is this uh, is this book about and what inspired you to pursue this, uh, this topic? So Womanist Midrash is a way of engaging the text that is a womanist hermeneutic and womanism emerges from African-American women's lived experience. Uh, The classic definition by Alice Walker includes the line that uh, womanism is to feminism is purple is to lavender. So it is a richer, deeper, thicker feminism. It is a midrashic work in that the exegeses are accompanied by midrashim or uh, opening up of the text, filling in the blanks, filling in the spaces between the lines. And some of this uh, derives from classical rabbinic midrash. Uh, One of my academic specialties is rabbinic literature. And some of it stems from my cultural experience uh, in the black church. I realized that we have our own type of midrash, um, the sanctified imagination. And you'll be in a congregation that has a very literalistic reading of the text, but the pastor will free to feel free to move beyond the text and preaching and signal that by saying, in my sanctified imagination, you know, I see David in his chariot on 22s leaning to the side. And so the combination of the intro line, sanctified imagination, and the wildly asynchronous uh, descriptions uh, become a type of midrash. And so I wanted to do, um, I wanted to treat some female characters with whom the reader may well be unfamiliar. And so the first half was looking at uh, women, some who are larger characters, some who are smaller characters in the Torah. And then the second half, I treat all of the royal women in Israel and Judah. And people may be surprised that there are, you know, more than two dozen queens in Israel, uh, in Judah, particularly whose names are preserved in the text. So it is uh, a combination of translation uh, exegesis and womanist hermeneutic. 
Very nice. I'm, I'm excited to, to check it out. I know I had, uh, I have your, uh, the, the people's Bible that mm-hmm. you had helped, um, you were involved with putting together, which is just a fantastic resource to have along with everything else. Whenever I'm diving into a certain text or su- subject, mm-hmm. it's a huge resource to, uh, to kind of glance at the cultural aspects of, of the text, because I say this a lot, I'm, you know, as a white heterosexual male, I'm reading the text through a certain lens based on my experience mm-hmm. um, and my experience growing up. But once you start understanding a culture for what it was, especially in these ancient texts, that once I started reading it that way, it opened up just a whole uh, wide range of different understandings, different interpretations, and it really enriched, I think, my reading of the Bible. And I, I always... Through my journey going from borderline atheist to agnostic to back around to wherever I am right now, um, a G, you know, someone who's studying Jesus and, and who's wrestling with the text, uh, I feel like n- now that I have that foundation in understanding a, a cultural, the cultural aspect, it, it makes kind of digging into this stuff more fun and interesting rather than trying to just take what I'm reading and apply it to my, my, the modern culture that we're in. Um, so when you teach, when you teach your, your students, uh, how, how do you suggest that they approach the Bible? Cause I'm, I'm assuming, um, you have a lot of students from different, you know, wide ranging backgrounds and what's the, what would be the first thing you would say to somebody who's really wants to dive into, you know, these ancient texts? Well, so to, Uh, tie my answer to your question, which is where I think you want to go. And I'll circle back around to how I start my class, which is not in that place. But to deal with the issue of cultures, uh, I keep uh, the students, uh, I have them keep two sets of cultures before them. Uh, And one is the ancient set of cultures in the text, which is the one they know the least about, and which is what we're going to spend most of our time working up, and their contemporary culture. And to be thoughtful about how and where and if, if those cultures can engage. Um, I have them do a uh, self-inventory. The People's Bible has a companion, the People's Companion to the Bible, which has uh, most of the scholarship, it has all of the scholarship that's in the People's Bible uh, with uh, one or two additional essays, but it also has a personal inventory that allows the reader to think seriously about the things that shape their lens. What are you bringing to the text? And the questions are very specific. What's your explicit uh, political leaning? What's your implicit political leaning? Um, How does your class affect you? How does your gender affect you? Um, And so one of the things I do is, is have the students do an assignment. It's actually their first assignment is I call it self as interpreter. Who are you as an interpreter and what are you bringing to the biblical text? So that's how I get at this issue of, of cultures. But in terms of what do I do uh, on, the, on the first day of, of class, one of the things I have them do is look at what the biblical texts say about themselves, the places where Characters and authors talk about the production of the text. Write this down and teach it to your children. Or Jeremiah dictated a scroll and then the king put it in the fireplace and burned it up. So so if we just lost the entire book of Jeremiah, how do we have a story? 
And Jeremiah says, well, I told, I dictated a whole nother one to Baruch and I made improvements, he says, and I added, you know, many things, right? So what are those stories? And the other exercise I do on literally the second day of class is I send them to the library to pull Bibles off the shelves and look at the tables of contents and help them deconstruct the idea that the Bible is a thing. Um, uh, The Bible is not a singular thing. And so most of them are some flavor of Protestant. I'm Episcopalian. I don't, I'm not reformed and I don't consider myself Protestant. And so one of the things we talk about is um, the invention of the 66 book Bible in 1782, which is kind of recent in biblical history. Uh, and what it is other Christians around the planet are reading. So uh, that first week of entry to Hebrew Bible um, is a bit disorienting. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I need, I, uh, I need to, I, I really, that's something I really want to do is start taking, find somewhere to go and take some classes and really enrich, you know, my, my knowledge about about this because I've been doing this all my own in between work and kids and, and everything and and well you know. come on come on out to Fort Worth and we'd love to have you at Bright Divinity School <laughs> and in the meantime I think you know that when that course is up and running I uh, tweet uh, that course content a lot of it and the students also so under the hashtag Bright Bible you can find sort of the sequence of the course and for your listeners Bright is spelled B R I T E um, and so I invite you to that hashtag. Oh, that'd be great. Fantastic. So, so you're, um, you're involved in the Episcopalian church. Um, you uh, is it, or is it ordained? Is that the right word? Yes. Ordained in yes. the Episcop- Episcopal church. Yes. But, uh, what, what, what was your personal journey, I guess, coming, coming into, into this being, uh, an ordained woman minister, uh, a black ordained woman minister is, I think a lot of people like, like, like me, especially we take a lot for granted and I always, you know, what was your personal journey like through that? Was it, I, I, and I'm not sure about what the Episcopal church is like as far as the struggles, as far as the gender, uh, separation or anything like that, um, in, in ministry. So if you can just briefly explain what sure. your journey to becoming well, ordained. I'm late to the Episcopal Church. I've only uh, been in the Episcopal Church for um, a very few years. I should be able to count, um, I'm going to say, a little more than five. Um, So now I, well, we're actually not broadcasting, so I can turn the back of my head to you. (laughs) Literally look at my ordination certificates. Seven. 20, two, 20, 2007 is when I was ordained a deacon. We have dual ordination, and I was priested uh, six months later. And so I'd been in the church a couple years before that. Um, so the Episcopal Church is also late to ordaining women. Uh, it began sort of notoriously in the 70s with an unsanctioned ordination of a group of women that were called uh, the irregulars. So that is now part of my story, but it's the latest addition to my story. Uh, I entered ordained ministry through the auspices of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And that's obviously a culturally black church. So 
uh, I was affirmed in my identity, and I was also affirmed in my gender. I really didn't know until I went to seminary that there were churches where women were not ordained. I looked at those uh, those texts like I looked at the slave texts, and I presumed everyone else did as well. And so I was really quite surprised to find uh, that I had classmates who were in agony, and I have to admit I wasn't terribly sympathetic. I was like, why not move to another church? Let me tell you something about the AME Zion Church. It is uh, arguably the church that has ordained women the longest and most consistently, right? So in history, you have these churches that uh, this congregational church ordained this woman, but it was just that congregation and not a denomination. It didn't continue. But really, starting in the 1800s, right, uh, the Amy Zion Church ordained Mary Small, a deacon in 1895. Uh, and then before she could be ordained an elder, ordained another woman, deacon and then elder. And then, I'm sorry, Julia Foote was the first woman ordained. Julia Foote was ordained uh, deacon and then Mary Small was ordained deacon and elder. And then Julia Foote received her elders ordination. And the Amy Zion Church began changing the language in its in its book of discipline that, you know, uh, who could represent the church at uh, general conferences and that the delegates not be male. So they, they sort of did this work from the beginning. So I was in an environment where there was no peril attached to being a woman in ministry. And so I simply don't have that piece of a story, uh, as do uh, many of my female colleagues. When I came into the Episcopal Church, um, that was really a product of discernment. And I struggled with God a little bit over that because I understood myself being called to black church. Um, but I was in a situation where there was a local black Episcopal church. And even though I was a pastor in the AME Zion church, my church didn't meet for Sundays. It was a country church on a, on a circuit. So when I wasn't in my pulpit, I would go to this black Episcopal church and found myself really at home there. Um, my theology uh, lined up uh, more with what I was experiencing in the Episcopal Church, and when I moved from North Carolina, where I completed, uh, where I was finishing my PhD, to Philadelphia to take my first job, uh, I moved into the Episcopal Church at that time, um, and there I went to a church that was also a Black Episcopal Church, the mother of Black Episcopal churches, the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas, founded in 1792. Uh, which at one point was home to virtually every freed person. Um, and I'm still a member of that church. Uh, my priesthood is canonically resident uh, in the Diocese of Pennsylvania. I am licensed in Fort Worth. You can think of it like a, like a lawyer or a doctor. You sort of have to get certified wherever you are so you can legally practice. Um, and moving to Fort Worth was quite a dislocation. Uh, because of the history of the church here, which had been through a split and is in some legal contest with the, with the conservative elements that left the Episcopal Church that have some property. Uh, and there are no black Episcopal churches. Uh, so uh, I am in a lightly integrated church that ironically has another black woman priest as the rector or pastor. Um, but I am no longer in black church in terms of my membership. So uh, I have a church on the side uh, and I go to a black Baptist church uh, 
regularly. So sometimes I go to church twice on a Sunday because I go to a 5 p.m. service in my Episcopal church. And so sometimes I go to Baptist church in the morning and Episcopal church in the evening. Uh, what I'm starting to learn is like, no matter where you go, as long as you're personally being fed, you know, especially if you're in a leadership role, like the leader's got to get fed some point, <laughs> you know, that's really good. Well, I'm glad to have those options, but it's still um, a sorrow to me that I can't be who I am in my body, which is a black Episcopalian, right? So when I go to my colleague's church, the Baptist church, love the church, love love the colleague, um, if I accidentally go on first Sunday and I forget and they have communion, then I'm in what I refer to as a liturgical faint, right? Because there's a reason I'm an Episcopalian and not a Baptist, right? So. I, you know, I have that moment of, okay, uh, let's just be in fellowship and community in the body of Christ. But this is, this is not my thing. This is, you know, (laughs) so, but when I'm in the Episcopal church, one of the reasons I attend the 5 p.m. service is um, the music of the church, while lovely, is just culturally alien to me. And uh, I felt like I was being colonized all the time. I'm not hearing any African-American music in my church. I can't worship in my own vernacular. So I go to an evening service that has no music. So I can just have the richness of a liturgy without the cultural occupation of my soul. So yes, I have these two places, but um, the fact that I'm spread over two places is a very sorrowful commentary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Definitely can see that. So here we are, 2017. We got a new president. And I mean, you don't realize like how spoiled I think you are when as far as when leadership changes sometimes in, in this country. And um, and while and I feel like when Obama was president, I feel like a lot of people felt more em- uh, empowered just just because just because the, there's the leader leading our country, um, you know, a well-spoken uh, black man as our as our president half half black I don't you know I don't know I, I'm not we're not crossing T's and dotting I's right <laughs> I'm gonna push you on that well spoken um, you know, when white folks start saying black folk are well spoken th- there's always uh, the implication that that's a surprise and I didn't mean it that way but yeah it needs not to be said right 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 okay I I mean I mean I guess in regards to Trump. Any, anybody's well, well spoken and uh, compared to him, but um, yeah, I did not mean that. I didn't mean it that way, but um, I, I understand what you're saying. Definitely, apologize. If there's any uh, didn't mean to offend at all. I feel like, and I, I've spoken about this with with my wife, with a lot of people, and I feel like the the the, the culture, the U.S. culture, seems to have been like the the dialogue about um, gender and race has has changed. And not in a in a positive way, and I've been wrestling with that, and and I don't know if it's just the news cycle or 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 what's going on, but the or my friends and surroundings, like, and I've been wrestling with that, and I guess I would I would want to ask you like, what would your advice be to 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 women and and men? I guess anyone who's frustrated with this this current administration, like, is this something that? is all in our head or is there, did you definitely see a specific shift as soon as uh, we, the election ended in 2016 and when we had a new president, I guess being sworn in, in in January? 
So I'm looking at our political landscape uh, more broadly. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of things have happened. Um, one, I think that the, that the way that power has been wielded shifted, and I honestly trace it back to uh, the George Bush presidency. I think that in many ways, George Bush was a very unlikely candidate. Well, his own family said, like, he's not the one we picked for this. You know, mm-hmm. they were surprised that that, that worked. it was supposed to be Jeb. Uh, but there was very much a sense that power was being uh, wielded uh, by folk who were not president in that administration. And if you had the right team in place, you could go all the way and it kind of didn't matter who was out in front. So there was all of this, uh, you know, Cheney and, and folk behind him. And I really think that that put the idea out that you didn't have to have the best educated, most competent, most experienced, most savvy in political discourse candidate. You had to get somebody who could get elected, but you had the people behind them, which is how we then had even the remote possibility of Sarah Palin being a vice president. And I see our current president as one more step in that direction, uh, a figure to rally behind while uh, Bannon and Priebus govern. At, at one point, it was reported that while a candidate, uh, he was offering, I guess, uh, Governor Case, uh the whole portfolio, right? You could, if you come on my team, you can do all these things. So I, I think that the way uh, presidential campaigns and candidates uh, function is very different, and and it's been a decline in terms of the cultural climate. What may be new is the way the media um, eggs on this uh, vile discourse. Um, you know, they just essentially rolled over and became twenty-four hour coverage to the most outrageous character and provoked him to be further outrageous and, you know, sort of fed themselves off of their own profits and, and are continuing to snowball in that direction. So the way the media shaped the political discourse, I think is new. I think they, they crossed a line and that includes progressive media. Um, and I also don't think there's really any neutral media anymore, but what has not changed but simply become more visible is the rampant white supremacist uh, structures in this country, right? Um, That's not new. It came out of the closet big time when the leader of the free world was a black man. um, And you started having, you know, senators yelling, you lie and Supreme court justices uh, behave intemperately during State of the Union addresses. Uh, Barack Obama's blackness gave them permission to just start pulling their hoods out of the closet. And we've been on an escalating rant since then. But it's important to observe that those things are not new, just like the extrajudicial killings of black women and men and trans folk are not new. They're just more visible. And so that's shocking to people who didn't know that was going on all along. What I find personally disheartening is the statistics behind the election, which make it very clear 
that half or more, 50 to 60 percent, depending on which subsection of uh, white folk uh, anywhere around me, I'm in Texas, so it's probably going to be a higher percentage, but in my mostly white Episcopal church, among my largely white colleagues and students, um, not only supported this candidate, even if they were uh, leery of the values being espoused by the candidate, overlooked them to support in spite of those values. They either affirmed those values or said, I can live with them and still vote for the person. Uh, and for me, that just sort of unravels the myth of the white progressive. What would your advice be to strong women who are standing up against the these, you know, these, uh, I don't know, the misogyny that seems to be has progressed, right, uh, through through the years, and it seems to be, like I said, coming coming to a head. Um, I mean, just as an example, the movie Wonder Woman is opening up uh, next weekend, and you know, Alamo Drafthouse has been doing all women showings. And all, like, I don't know if it's the internet. I don't know if it's if it's too many people have access to the internet right now. I, I don't know, but all of a sudden that was something of contention <laughs> for for men to all of a sudden complain and over this like to me a petty thing it's 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 ridiculous it also it's a willful misunderstanding of how sexism and access work and you see the same things with the claim of oh this is reverse racism right if i'm going to give a scholarship to uh undeserving african-american kids then i'm somehow discriminating against uh white kids so it's a willful ignorance about the structures of power right so um, so right, that's nonsensical. So I would say to women who are doing any public work, uh, whether it's preaching or, uh, blogging or tweeting, if you're in public space, um, know that by virtue of being female or perceived to be female, and this applies to some degree to men who are, who are femme or who are non-gender conforming in some way, that you will be a target and you will be a target of some of the most uh, vile language. And when internet trolls come for women, they often threaten rape. They often uh, dig into people's uh, backgrounds and make specific threats about their children, sometimes identifying their schools. So know that doing this work um, brings with it uh, sometimes horrific, violent uh, and vile responses. And so I would say, uh, you know, be careful, uh, document the things that come to your inbox, the things that are tweeted to you, um, uh, you know, screen save them, do what you can and and contact the police um, when necessary. I would also say that it's important to resist this um, sort of overwhelming wave of um fascist nationalism and misogyny um, in the in the highest office of the land. Right. So we have um, a vice president uh, who can't be in the same room as a woman he's not married to, which is going to directly impinge on the ability of female staffers to do their job. So are female staffers going to be edged out of some positions in favor of male staffers? Um, 
that kind of construction of woman as threat is is reprehensible. Um, so other advices uh, would be to attend to your self-care, uh, to have conversation partners, um, but not let anyone bully you out of doing work that's important to you, um, that you feel called to do, that feeds your soul. That's great. Great advice. So can we change this conversation? This, this, you know what I mean? Is, is there hope for, for moving forward? Cause there's a lot of people seeing the problem, discussing the problem. And I guess the trick would be, how do we address the problem and move forward? And, and I mean, it's a long, it's gonna be long. I feel like it's gonna be a long haul. It's a numbers game. Um, yeah. Half or more of white folk uh, seem not to have a problem with the current situation. Mm. So, um, and the, and conservative Christianity, evangelical Christianity is heavily invested in the current, uh, political structure, including all of its, um, uh, racism, homophobia, xenophobia. Um, so, you know, who is it that wants change? I don't know that we have a groundswell of people in this country that want change. One of the things that really disappointed me in the election was that Barack Obama wasn't elected president on the strength of black folk, right? He won on multiracial, multiethnic coalitions, which told me um, that we were at a place that there were enough different kinds of folk who wanted the same kinds of things, and that there were a majority of them um, that changed this world. Now, I understand that numerically that happened with Hillary Clinton, but uh, gerrymanderically, which I know is not a word, (laughs) uh, but based on gerrymandering in electoral college, we got a different result. But even so, breaking down who in those those uh, states and uh, districts with those electoral votes, we, we still have this huge disconnect uh, in the way uh, so many white folk voted, so many white Christians voted, not just blue collar Christians, absolutely white collar Christians, uh, uh, white collar, white folk, uh, and uh, some African-Americans, some Latinos, and I have to admit, I scratch my head on that, uh, right? But so I don't know that we can get change until we have enough people who want change. And what these election results told me is that this is what some people wanted and a significant number of people. So um, I think houses uh, of faith have to do uh, much more work on systematic oppression that we have to do much more with unmasking the structures that are at work in the United States and white churches have to do that work. Right. We started talking about um, these Bible epics uh, in which everyone uh, is white. That's actually part of the problem, right? Yeah, the whiteness yes. is deified uh, to the point that uh, West Asian, North African folk are made white because uh, people can't identify with blackness as holy, right? Um, so the theological issues are interwoven with the political issues. 
right? And so for since the Ferguson uprisings, the language of Black Lives Matter has has been ready on my tongue. And that has become a hermeneutic filter through which I uh, read and interpret the scriptures. And for your listeners, I post my sermons mostly uh, in written manuscript form, occasionally in video form uh, at willgaffney.com. And so I am reading the text through a Black Lives Matter um, hermeneutic these days. And one of the things I take issue with regularly um, is uh, the idol that is white Jesus. Um, uh, you know, I, I said it in a sermon very recently, um, white Jesus does not love you and cannot save you. <laughs> white Jesus is the idol of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. We, we got to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew. Some stuff to unpack. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I encourage everyone to go to willgaffney.com. I'm going to put a, there's a link in the show notes. Um, if you on our, on the axpacks.com, if you type in Will Gaffney, you're going to find uh, links to uh, your website and the other podcast episode you were on. Um, I thank you so much for for talking to me. I value your opinion and all this, and um, and I really you know as I always love to kind of run things. Not necessarily, not necessarily by you, like directly, but I always find myself checking with your website and your blog and your sermons. Like, what I wonder what what the Reverend Will Gaffney thinks about this, and uh, it's definitely uh, some a lot of valuable insights that you have. And I just want to thank you for talking to me today about all this. And I'm sure more things will come up. I'll and I'll probably uh, drop you a line again. I'm sure. And uh, if I want to, if if I'm curious about what you would think about a certain subject and. Sure. I'd love to have you back on. <laughs> Thank you. And I'd like to uh, call your attention and that of your listeners to another book that I wrote yes. uh, this year. Uh, and that is a commentary on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Perhaps not for the faint of heart. But it's part <laughs> of a series uh, called the Wisdom Commentary Series. And this is an important series because it is the first multi-volume biblical commentary series uh, that is explicitly feminist. It's seven, 70 volumes covering uh, Hebrew Bible, Christian New Testament, and the Deuterpocryphal canonical uh, writings as well. Um, it's a very important series. Some of the volumes are already in print. Uh, mine is coming this summer. It's uh, uh, perhaps a little more uh, academically rigorous, but it is cutting-edge scholarship on the biblical texts, uh, and I highly commend the series and, of course, my own volume in it. <laughs> That's fantastic. This, these are important things um, that I feel like the church has stifled uh, women's role in these these ancient texts. And you you start unpacking things, start reading, start learning about the culture. You're going to find there's a, is a lot of strong women in the Bible that have been their voices haven't been heard yet because of current doctrine and theology have been stifling those and uh, there's just so much richness I feel in these texts that have yet to be explored so thank you for all the work that you do and helping unpack all that I just really appreciate everything that that you're doing and thank you for having me on you can find more from the Reverend Will Gaffney over at her website willgaffney.com I'll put her 
links into the show notes, including a link to the pre-order for her book, Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. It's available in early August from every major retailer. If you dig the show, if you want to support the show, please check out our Patreon. Patreon.com slash the AXPX. You can become a patron saint for only a dollar a month. You'll get access to the AXPX Diaries, which is a weekly, personal, 30 minutes um, about my personal faith journey. And hopefully from there we can spark some more conversation. Music on this episode brought to you by the Candle Park Stars and Slow Dancing Society. You can find links over at the website, theaxpx.com slash music. You can also find all of our social media links and past episodes over at theaxpx.com. I want to thank all of you for listening. We're continuing this series, Ask Me About My Feminist Agenda. Next week, we'll be talking to my wife, Jennifer. It was a very fun conversation, so I can't wait for all of you to hear it. Talk to you then.